from KQED Public Radio in San Francisco. I'm Michael Krasny. Coming up next on Forum, Zen teacher, poet, and author Norman Fisher will be joining us to talk about his new book. It's called Sailing Home. It's all about using the wisdom of Homer's Odyssey to navigate through life. He joins us for the hour, which will include your calls and emails after this. From KQED Public Radio in San Francisco, I'm Michael Krasny. Good morning and welcome to this morning's forum. Norman Fisher is former abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center, and he's one of the country's leading Zen teachers, as well as an author and a poet. His books include Opening to You, Zen-inspired translations of the Psalms, and Taking Our Places, The Buddhist Path to Truly Growing Up, as well as four volumes of poetry. His newest book is Sailing Home, Using the Wisdom of Homer's Odyssey to Navigate Life's Perils and Pitfalls, and he joins us for this forum hour, and welcome. Good morning. Great to be here. Great to have you here. Well, (laughs) I I really enjoyed this book, I must say, Uh, and and what I liked about it was uh, the ambitious attempt, which I think in many ways was realized, of bringing together West and East. That is, what could be more Western and Hellenistic than the Odyssey by Homer with Zen practice and with Eastern thinking and so forth, but let's get to the heart of it, because you, well... You begin with talking about deja vu and <laughs> the idea that we've been home before and yeah. we're on this journey and we're moving back to home, not necessarily without even knowing it. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's a book really about the spiritual journey. And so I use everything that I've known and practiced all my life to talk about that, including, as you say, and mainly the Odyssey. But uh, it strikes me that this is one of the strange and beautiful things about the spiritual journey that we start from wholeness. We start from beauty and then we seem to inevitably have to go away from that, and then we want to come home. So we all have to go forth, like Odysseus goes forth in the Iliad, to make his mark in the world. But then we long for home. You know, we long for the wholeness and the and the and the beauty and the depth of our childhood. And yet we can't be children again. So we want to come home, and we have to come home, but in a different way. So in a way, you know, there's nothing to it. We're just starting from home, leaving home coming back home, and yet it's a lifetime's journey. It's like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz, right? <laughs> yeah, I actually thought of using that story. <laughs> That's right, just like Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. But it's metaphorical. I mean, yeah, what you're yeah. talking about is spiritual odyssey is metaphoric, and you say at one point, in fact, everything changes and nothing changes, which uh, reminds me of Tolstoy, but there's a yeah. sense that on, on a spiritual odyssey, that is indeed the case. That's right. There's a paradox, I think, at the heart of our spiritual practice, at, at the heart of our religious lives. There's a paradox, which I think uh, I, I really forefront in the book, and I think too often in religion, it's not the paradox and the strangeness and, and, the, and the irony of the spiritual life is not really forefronted. But this is a sense of um, all this meditation and prayer and practice uh, what's, is, is really to get us back to what is our own Ithaca. I mean, Odysseus is Ithaca. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's, in other words, spirituality, the religious life, is our birthright as human beings. You know, it's our wholeness. It's what we already know. It's what we, where we come from. Seems to me that children are very naturally and innocently and purely uh, religious. Uh, so yeah, we're trying to we're trying to get back to that. But what we can't do it, as I said before, we can't do it in a childish way. We have to do it as adults, and so we come back to it. Well, let's talk about the Odyssey because you talk about it a good deal here. In fact, uh, you talk about the journey and the path and all of these notions that we have uh, that Odysseus has when he goes forth and has all these adventures before he gets home to Ithaca. Um, but you say also the sea is a hero in the Odyssey, and let's yeah, talk about that. Yeah, well, as I was reading the the poem, you know, I I noticed that all the all the action of the poem takes place on these little islands, and to advance the action, the characters set forth from an island and go to another one, and and then they're on the sea, and when they're on the sea, they never know what's going to happen to them. Uh, they could be blown off course. They could be pushed by the oceans uh, to an island where they didn't want to go and there's all kinds of monsters and so on. And it strikes me that that's how it is in our life too. You know, we're, we're set forth on the sea of time, uh, the sea of the world, uh, the sea of happenstance. We really don't know uh, what's going to happen or where we're going to end up. Uh, and we have to sail on that sea and appreciate this sort of uh, mystery uh, of our lives. And so, uh, again, I think we, especially nowadays, we have the illusion of control 
uh, to such an extent that we don't realize that, in fact, we're constantly setting forth to see and not knowing what's going to happen. So I think in the Odyssey, uh, the sea really is one of the characters. It really is, in a way, the main character. It's the sea that causes Odysseus to have so many adventures that he has are absolutely not what he intends. But the sea forces him into it. And Odysseus is us, and we are Odysseus, and the crew is us, and we yeah, are the crew. And that's right. I think so. I think so. I think certainly in the Odyssey, uh, the crew is... Um, a function, uh, uh, an extension of, of Odysseus. You know, the crew doesn't really have an, an independent existence, really. It's, it's an extension of Odysseus. And by the end of his journey, when he returns home to Ithaca, <clears throat> the entire crew is gone. He's sort of stripped of any of his uh, appurtenances and, 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 and improvements, and there he is, just naked Like a baby at home. again. Like yeah. a baby again, yeah, naked at say. home, yeah. Also, he's, you know, he's responsible for a lot of his crew getting, uh, well, for example, when you write about Polyphemus, uh, the Cyclops, and on the island yeah, of Cyclops, yeah. is, uh, it could have got away if it hadn't been for Odysseus bragging about <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, that's right. That's the beautiful thing about uh, using Odysseus as a character to talk about the spiritual life. Is I should mention his crew gets eaten as a result. Yeah, that's, that's right. Many of them, not yeah, all of them, but yeah. many of them. Yeah, uh, because Odysseus is very imperfect. And, and this is one of the reflections that I've had over the years, is that in, in all the world's religions, we're following the examples of some pretty perfect or pretty extraordinary individuals, you know, a Jesus or a Moses or a Buddha. Uh, we're emulating them, right? And it's a little frustrating because we can't help but notice that we're not quite up to snuff when it comes to emulating those characters. But in the Odyssey, uh, Odysseus is constantly messing up, and, and the Polyphema story is you know, an example of, of twice in that story where he really screws up royally, costing himself and his crew uh, mightily. So uh, you know, as ordinary people who are not exactly in control of our passions all the time and who make slip-ups and mistakes and lose track of ourselves all the time, that is part of our spiritual spiritual journey, inevitably, and Odysseus uh, evidences that in a way that uh, you know a Buddha doesn't or a Jesus doesn't. And that's how I got into writing this book. Is I began using stories from the Odyssey in my Dharma talks, and people said, "Gee, you know, I can really relate to that uh, Buddha. I really admire, but sometimes it's hard to relate to the perfection and the determination of a Buddha. But Odysseus, you know, loses track of himself, get, gets mixed up." falls into despair, that sounds more like me. And so it turned out to be a very effective character to express. The, and this is what I'm so much always into now, now as I practice with people is what's it really like? Not, not what should it, should it be like or, or what was it like for the great sages of the past, but what's it really like for us in our world as we are to undertake spiritual practice, what really happens. Is this where the Zen comes in? Because most of you think about the Aegean and all these islands. You don't necessarily think of the East and Zen Buddhism. Yeah. Yeah, well, this is where the Zen comes in, in in the sense that I'm doing contemporary Zen in contemporary America, working with people in the world uh, who are trying to make this path a real path for themselves in the context of their lives as they are. And so, yes, this is where the Zen part comes in, uh, in terms of the work I'm doing now. Talking with Norman Fisher, his book is Sailing Home, Using the Wisdom of Homer's Odyssey to Navigate Life's Perils and Pitfalls. And a lot in, uh, in, in terms of perils and pitfalls, there's a lot of the sense of uh, tales of grief and going through that, but also the whole process that you write about with respect to Odysseus and mentoring. I mean, it's all a part of his growth. It's all a part of, again, this journey that he's on. Mm -hmm. And we see it as, or you see it as really the trials and tribulations of a lifetime. That's right. Coming into focus. Um, but, of course, he's, he's a man who's been in the Trojan War for years. And now Ten he's, years, yeah. And now he's on the loose for another decade, uh, having to face all these Herculean uh, adversaries of one sort or another. Mm -hmm. And... Um, it's almost as if when when you read Homer, you're reading a man who's going through tests, who's being tested by the gods constantly. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And in a sense, that metaphor works too, doesn't it? We're all being tested. Huh? Mm -hmm. Well, in, in uh, Odysseus's case, uh, he went out to the war reluctantly. He was not the great hero. His characteristic was his wiliness, his trickiness. His cunning. His cunning. Yeah. Yeah. He's the one who invented the Trojan horse. Yeah. Ten years of battling against the citadel of Troy without any success. And then finally this concept, let's go in with a horse and we'll get inside that way. So it was Odysseus who invented that. Ten years go by and he, all he wants to do is go home. In other words, the job is done. 
I don't need any more trials. I don't need any more tribulations. I'm not challenging myself anymore. All I want to do is go home. And it takes 10 years for him to get home because he keeps getting blown this way and that way. And, uh, and all the disasters that he goes through are not what he planned, not what he wanted. He's just trying to get home to his wife and his family and to some kind of sense of wholeness and peace. But little does he realize that when he gets home, he has to fight off all those suitors of Penelope's. And, exactly. I mean, what you see is kind of, I guess Milton's phrase would be chaos and old night that he has to hold them at bay. But yeah. he's wily and he's cunning, but he's also a warrior. I mean, he's able to... Yeah, see, yeah, he's yeah. definitely tough. But but the characteristics of that that are uh, of his that are uh, featured most are his wiliness and his cunning. That's how he's described in the opening lines of the poem: "A man of many twists and turns." He's got to kill a lot, though. Yeah, there's a lot. There's plenty of mayhem in, in the Odyssey, as there as there is in almost all ancient texts. Yeah. That's not uh, exactly consonant with Buddhist teachings. Is it? <laughs> no, uh, it's not. And and you know, I was in a bookstore in in uh, San Diego and. A guy who turned out was a professor of literature stood up and made a, an impassioned speech uh, on this point. He said, "I'm no longer charmed by the Odyssey. Uh, we gloss over all this mayhem and we metaphorize it too much, and it's really killing. And we really should take note of it." And, and I said, "You know, I mean, it really, it really, his words struck home for me." And I said, "You're, you're right." And probably uh, there really was killing somewhere along the line in this myth. I mean, there's some, probably some basis, in fact, to it. And goodness knows in our history and in our present moment life, there's plenty of killing and mayhem. It seems to be part of what we do in our human confusion. So maybe uh, the mayhem in the Odyssey can't just be glossed over as a metaphor. I mean, it is a metaphor. But at the same time, maybe there should be some grieving when we read a text like this, or including the Bible. You know, when we read the Bible, maybe we should be grieving over the violence that we see uh, taking it's a pretty violent book too. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah, there there is plenty of violence in the Odyssey, and uh, and I take it, of course, I I interpret it metaphorically that there is violence in us, and we do have to confront that and deal with that. It won't do religiously to kind of gloss that over with some some pretty ideas and some 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 idea of peacefulness when we have to look and see. Actually, there's plenty of upset and grief and, and violence in our heart. We have to look at that and deal with it. But you take each of these metaphorical adventures of Odysseus and you look at them in terms of, again, um, what we face in life. I mean, uh, for example, Circe uh, turning men into swine and yeah. his dealing with that, or the lotus eaters in our memory, or the somebody-nobody theme. I mean, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. you know, I know a lot of listeners aren't familiar with the Odyssey or don't remember yeah, it from having yeah, yeah. studied it when they were younger and so forth, but each of these is a kind of journey in itself and a stepping stone to yes. the final return home. Yes, yes. Well, that's what I've done, really, is take uh, the most of the famous incidents in the Odyssey and think about them in terms of what I know and I've seen in my lifetime as a spiritual practitioner and a spiritual teacher. Uh, and um, I think that a lot of my interpretations, uh, you know, I read a certain amount on the Odyssey. Uh, I'm not an expert on it, but uh, my interpretations are probably not exactly the usual ones. So I'm, I'm looking at it very specifically in, in terms of uh, the spiritual journey. And yes, each one of the episodes does tell us something different about what we need to tend to in our inner lives as we make that journey home. Well, let's use a few examples because you use them personally. You write about the land of the dead, for example, and you yeah. write about being inspired at Tassahar to write a poem about your mother. Yeah, so there's a, yeah. there's a personal link as well as a philosophical link. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, in our culture, uh, there's a tremendous denial of death. Uh, let's gloss over it. Let's uh, not think about it. We Think about life. Think about the future. But in fact, I think one has to integrate uh, grief uh, and those in our lives who've died. Uh, we have to turn toward that, uh, make grief uh, a positive and necessary part of our lives. Uh, and, and we keep coming back to that grief over and over again. And, and in the Odyssey, uh, there's something that needs to happen. Odysseus has to go to the land of the dead. He has to revisit many of the people that he's seen in his, lives, in his life. And it's in the land of the dead that he's going to receive uh, the prediction that he needs for his life going forward. So <clears throat> it's turning toward uh, death and impermanence and loss and grief as a spiritual practice that has to be part of the journey. Sirens also part of the journey. Yeah, yeah the sirens, uh, in the, si the way I interpret the sirens uh, in, in the book is, uh, is our desire. Uh, it's a very interesting and telling uh, episode because 
Odysseus is offered the choice. Uh, you can escape the sirens by blocking your ears and not hearing them, or you can hear them, uh, but if you're going to risk hearing them, you must lash yourself to the mast and let your men know that they're not to untie you under any circumstances. And that's the choice that Odysseus makes. So uh, oftentimes uh, in the spiritual journey, uh, it's as if we're being told, uh, forget about your desire. Uh, too dangerous. But in the Odyssey, we learn that, no, actually, you can't cut out your desire. You have to uh, listen to it, and it is dangerous. It's very dangerous. But if you listen to your desire uh, with discipline and with strength and with restraint and with some help from your friends, you, you can sail through that passage, and you will be stronger for it. So that's how it, how it works and out And subdue those uh, dukas, as you call them, I think. In yeah. fact, I remember a story about Gandhi where he supposedly was— had naked women lying on each side of him and, you know, decided to just... It's a siren I've story, heard that really. story, yeah. yeah. I don't I've think it's apocryphal. Story. Maybe yeah, some of my listeners yeah, know, yeah. but I believe it's it's real. But speaking about Odysseus and his choices, there's Scylla and Charybdis, too. Uh, I remember writing in, in my book that I was I was writing a memoir and I was drawn to, between Scylla and Charybdis, self-inflation and self-laceration. And yes, for yes. Odysseus, uh, it becomes a choice that's almost really impossible to make. It's like you're... Uh, your Zen teacher story about the firing squad, which I'd like you to tell, actually, because it's instructive. Yeah, um, it's a it's a it's a uh, uh, it's a parable, uh, I guess. A parable yeah. or or a thought uh, experiment. Um, if I can remember the story now, it's in the book. <laughs> I don't remember it, but I think it's uh, there's a there's a. Uh, uh, I don't remember it. You tell it. I well, there's, I a fire, it's, there's a firing squad. You have yeah. a, ch- a choice, which is really no choice. It's just it's like Sophie's choice. You, yeah. know, you can set, face a firing squad or not face a firing squad, but either way, uh, it has uh, a terrible ending and a tragic ending. But the fact is that he is able to sail through this as well. He's able yeah, to make yeah, the choice. Yeah. Uh, of course, six of his men get eaten. But Yeah. I think, I think the, the, the point of that story is that uh, you can't avoid the choice. And this is the, the the story I tell in the book has to do with my saying, I want to avoid this choice. I'll walk away. I won't choose. And the idea is you can't walk away. You can't choose. That's how life is. You know, life doesn't give you the opportunity to walk away. There's no, sometimes you come to the place where you choose one terrible thing or another terrible thing. And what do you do about it? That's yeah, right. And that's yeah. it. That's, that's uh, it. Still in Charybdis. Also, um, getting back to the sirens, there's... Part of the, uh, what you link to that is intoxication of the past and, and yes, nostalgia of right. the past. Yes, that's right. That's right. That's the, the uh, secondary point there is uh, how do we view the past? And this is a, a tremendous point in, in, in some of the events that I've been having around the book across the country. Uh, this has often come up. I think we think of the past as being fixed. You know, this happened and that's the way it is and this is the effect it has on me. And then we become uh, intoxicated with that past story, and it begins to it begins to become like a vice on our lives. And uh, in fact, the past is always changing, according to our present moment e- engagement. So uh, we need to be not nostalgic about the past and not fix the past in our minds, not ignore the past. Obviously, we can't sort of say I'm I'm living in the present. There is no past, but. Depending on the choices I make in the present, the way I take care of myself in the present, the way I understand my life in the present, my past changes. So uh, not to be nostalgic about it uh, and, and, and be lulled to sleep with a great story about our past, but to, to engage the past in the present, that's, I think, the essence of spiritual practice. And we're talking to Norman Fisher, who is a Zen teacher and a poet and author. His newest book is called Sailing Home, Using the Wisdom of Homer's Odyssey to Navigate Life's Perils and Pitfalls. Toward the end, uh, you write about you do write about your your own some of your own personal experiences throughout the book. But you write about uh, a friend of yours who is um, affl- struck with ALS, with yeah. so-called Lou Gehrig's disease. Yeah, um, yeah. And again, <laughs> what do we learn from Odysseus about that kind of suffering, which just seems to be so monumental and so yeah. extraordinary? Yeah, well, well. toward the end of the book, uh, when Odysseus lands at home, on the island at home, on Ithaca, and is going through the process of securing his home, we, we learn that the name Odysseus means pain, that, that to confront pain has been the essence of Odysseus's life, and it's been the path that has taken him uh, to wisdom and compassion. And that's what the story of my friend who had ALS uh, illustrates, you know, of course, there's no greater disaster that can befall you personally than to get in a disease like this, which 
takes away everything, and finally your life, uh, which did happen to my friend. Since the writing of the book, he's passed away. But uh, as the story illustrates, he found a tremendous sense of connection uh, and intimacy with everybody in his life through turning toward his illness and confronting the feelings that it brought up in him. Uh, It was a very poignant and beautiful journey for him the last months of his life. And it was very moving, you know, to everybody uh, who was associated with him. And, and, you know, we hear a lot of stories like this nowadays. Uh, There are many inspiring stories like this. And it it tells us all that that when pain arises, of course, we're all trying to avoid pain if we can, as we should. But when we can't avoid it, uh, the only thing to do is turn toward it and embrace it and learn from it. And that's what the Odyssey tells us as well. It's very hard to do. I it mean, is hard to do. In it fact, uh, do. I was thinking about uh, when I interviewed Ramdas after his stroke. It was not yeah. that long after his yeah. stroke. And, he's, yeah. and, and he had almost a beatified attitude as I saw it. He said, well, you know, I'm not the person I was before, and I may never be that person again, but I'm a new type of person now. Yeah, yeah. And I approached my suffering in terms of understanding deeper and more Absolutely. profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. But so many people with that kind of suffering just become bitter. They yeah. become angry. They yeah. become and it's, understandable. And it's perfectly understandable. And that's why I think that uh, you know, it makes a lot of sense to take care of your inner life, your spiritual life, starting now. <laughs> because that's the thing about Ram Dass. You know, Ram Dass spent his lifetime in spiritual endeavor. So when this happened to Ram Dass, he was ready to make use of it. And it wasn't easy for him either. And it wouldn't be easy for any of us. The same thing with my friend with ALS. He had spent an, a number of years taking care of his spiritual practice, looking at his inner life, meditating, and so on. So he was ready for that when it came. And, and, and Odysseus is ready. He's ready for death, really, isn't he? By at the end, home. he is. Yeah, yeah. He, and yeah. he comes home. He rectifies his position at home. He clarifies and purifies his household. And then when death comes, he's ready. That's right. And yet, there's also a sense when you come to the end of the Odyssey that maybe it's going to be happily ever after. He's got, <laughs> he's got Penelope, he's got Telemachus, he's back in it. Well, well, it ends there. It ends happily ever after. But you do have this prediction, uh, which makes clear that he will have one last journey, and then he'll come home to die. And, and that prediction uh, is clearly uh, his fate, but you don't see that happening in, in the course of the Odyssey. It happens off camera, so to speak. There's also that whole uh, sense that you write about between the somebody and the nobody, you know. And yeah. when he comes back to Ithaca, at first he's really nobody, but then, of exactly. course, he's Odysseus. That's right. We're going to open up our phone lines and invite you to join us. We're talking to Norman Fisher, who is a well-known uh, veteran Bay Area Zen practitioner and Zen teacher, as well as an author and poet, and who has written about the Odyssey. And certainly some of you may want to talk about the Odyssey, and some of you may want to talk about Zen. Um, either way, uh, we certainly... Uh, have someone who's uh, well-versed in both and willing to talk with you about both or just in general about the spiritual odyssey that really is the odyssey in itself that he's writing about here. That is Homer's odyssey, but also the spiritual odyssey that individuals uh, uh, are drawn to. Our, if you're drawn to this conversation, we welcome you. Our toll-free number is available to you. It's 866-733-6786, and that will work whether you're listening to us on radio, Internet, or Sirius Satellite. Again, it's toll-free for your calls, 866-733-6786. Or you can join us by email, and our email address is simply forum at kqed.org. We welcome your involvement, your calls, and emails. The book, again, Sailing Home, Using the Wisdom of Homer's Odyssey to Navigate Life's Perils and Pitfalls. My guest, Norman Fisher. I'm Michael Krasny. This is Forum. I'm Michael Krasny. We're spending this hour with Norman Fisher, and his book is Sailing Home, Using the Wisdom of Homer's Odyssey to Navigate Life's Perils and Pitfalls. He's a poet and author and also um, a Zen teacher who was formerly the abbot of the San Francisco Zen Center. Where were you there? What years was that, Norman? Well, I was actually at the Zen Center from the uh, middle 70s to uh, 2000, but I was abbot from 1995 to 2000. So you were there when Perzig of motorcycle maintenance fame was there, were you? Uh, yes and no. I was at Tassajara during those years, so uh-huh. I never met him. He was uh, more uh, in the city, in Green Gulch. Yeah. We'll go to your calls, and we'll start out with Brad. Morning, Brad. Hey, good morning. Uh, thank you, Mike, for the call, and thank you, Norman. I just really, it's just a quick, just a check-in, just to say thank you so much for uh, all your wonderful Dharma talks up at Green Gulch, and uh, you very briefly were my uh, teacher, and uh, uh, I moved on 
from uh, the Green Gulch community some time ago, but uh, life is great, and it's so a wonderful pleasure to turn on the radio, and there you are talking about your new book, which I can't wait to, wait to read. Oh, thanks, Brad. Yeah, good luck to you. Thanks. Good to hear from you. Appreciate it, Brad. And we go to more of our callers. This is Marilyn. Hi, Marilyn. Uh, hi, Norman. I was, had a question. Uh, I know you're not a woman, but I wondered if you had given any thought to how this whole thing was for Penelope. And, uh, I, you know, I think some of us women get tired of waiting and waiting and waiting, though maybe that is also our spiritual journey to be waiting. But it seems so often that, you know, the hero is out there doing all, all these, uh, you know, uh, remarkable exciting things, and there she was unraveling her knitting or whatever she was doing. Yeah. Well, yeah. If you think Penelope had a long wait, you know who Griselda was? <laughs> well, yeah. I'm, I mean, I think lots of women are tired of this kind of um, role, and I don't know if that's uh, you know, yeah. how, how you get over that or beyond that. Or Yeah, well, I, I appreciate the question, Marilyn, and I, and I, and I did notice this and, and kind of debated whether I could say something about it in the book, uh, and, and I didn't. But I'm glad for the opportunity to say something now. If you read the Odyssey as as a myth, which I, certainly it is a, a myth and an archetype, you have to like a dream. You have to read all the characters as yourself. Yeah. So I think it's uh, on one hand you could say Penelope represents uh, women, and Odysseus is a man. But uh, I think we're all Odysseus and we're all Penelope. So uh, no, I like that interpretation because I see Penelope <clears throat> also as being patience and loyalty, really. Patience and loyalty, which a man has and a woman has. And the need to confront the world nowadays is a man's need and a woman's need. So Not in <clears throat> Greek times, but now. No, not in Greek and times. And not maybe 20 years ago even. <laughs> so as I read, as I read the, the, the Odyssey, I think we're, we're all Odysseus and we're all Penelope. So I don't think as a woman reader you should think of, you know, identify exclusively with Penelope because you have to go forth in the world too. All women do nowadays just as much as men. Uh, and, in, and in a way, uh, it's more difficult for a woman because uh, there's going forth into the world along with uh, many women have the responsibility uh, of motherhood, which is a hugely demanding going forth. So I think women have to do battle just like Odysseus is, uh, does uh, inwardly. Well, good luck to you, Marilyn, and uh, I like that answer uh, <laughs> uh, beyond gender lines. Uh, what about, uh, we'll talk about maybe um, the lines that have been set up uh, in some people's minds uh, between, you use a lot of Jewish tradition here uh, because you're Jewish and your background, and even talk about homecoming in terms of teshuvah and what I'm curious about, there are so many Jews who turn to Buddhism, who have turned to Buddhism mm-hmm. here in the Bay Area. I mean, the numbers are, are extraordinary. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet there are those who would argue these are two traditions that are really not enmeshed with one another. Mm-hmm. They don't necessarily, I mean, particularly because we were talking a little bit off air about how Buddhism doesn't really even necessarily, you don't need a god for Buddhism, but mm-hmm. you sure do for Judaism. Yeah, yeah. And yet... You integrate them. How do you? How do yeah. you? I guess it's a two-part question. What attracts so many Jews to Buddhism? Do you think? And secondly, how do you integrate two traditions that are so, in some ways, diametrically opposed? Mm-hmm. Well, the first part, uh, I think the reason why so many Jews are uh, attracted to Buddhism is that there's a kind of, for some Jews, you, you you grow up with the sense of the necessity to explore, to question, to do something, uh, not just to make a, a good home for yourself, but, but more to confront the world. Or to change the world. Or to change the world. Yeah. And, and also with a sense of uh, uh, the spirituality of that. So I think, you know, as one of my teachers said in response to this question, why so many Jews in Buddhism, his answer was, well, the Jews are a very spiritual people. You know, so it's just, essentially that's what I'm saying. Uh, and how to put the two together? Well, in a way, you know, um, Buddhism, when it first appeared here in the West, proposed uh, a path of personal exploration that was very dynamic and life-changing. And it didn't look like Judaism proposed that. It looked like Judaism was just sort of what you were and what you did. So Jews wanted to make that confrontation with reality, and so they went to Buddhism. And also it was a very advantageous that Buddhism wasn't Christianity. And, and so it didn't, you know, there wasn't a sense that, well, you have to convert from Judaism to Buddhism. You have to adopt a belief system to be a Buddhist. Uh, Buddhism was presented in the West as a meditation technique, a way of exploring reality. It didn't matter what you believe. It didn't matter whether you, quote-unquote, converted or became a, quote-unquote, Buddhist. You could just do this. And so that attracted Jews. Jews, Many Jews, myself included, were not interested in another religion or 
abandoning Judaism, but rather looking for an, an active and engaged path of inner exploration. And so Buddhism appeared to be that way for us, and so we, we went for it. There's a wonderful Jewish story in your book that I'd like you to tell, if you would, about a man who has a dream. Yes. And the dream is that there's going to be gold under a bridge. Yes, yes. A, a, a Jewish tailor from the shtetl uh, has a dream that there's uh, a pot of gold uh, under a bridge in a big city. So moved by the dream, he goes out to the road and goes to the capital, and lo and behold, he sees the very bridge. But standing guard over the bridge is a, is a soldier, a very fierce-looking soldier. Huh? A Cossack, in fact, yes. So he, he uh, doesn't know what to do. He stands there looking at the bridge, looking at the bridge, and finally the Cossack comes up to him and says, What are you doing here? And the Jew, being an innocent guy, you know, tells him the whole story. And the Cossack laughs uproariously and says, uh, What a foolish person. He said, I'll tell you the difference between you and me. I also had a dream. I dreamed that under the stove of a poor Jewish tailor in the shtetl was a treasure buried. But unlike you, I'm not stupid. I don't drop everything and go wandering looking for this. I know a dream is a dream, and I, and I just stick to my knitting. And so the Jew says, thank you very much, turns around, goes home, digs under his stove, finds the treasure, and le- leads the rest of his life uh, a happy man. So uh, there again, the, it's all at home, isn't it? It's all at home. It's back home. But he had to go forth, you see, to find the bridge and the Cossack in order to find out that he needed to come home. I think it was T. S. Eliot who said, <clears throat> we're, "We're we're always caught between home and homelessness." And you know, when we're home, we want to be homeless. I don't mean like out of the street homeless, but you know, homeless metaphorically. Yes, when we're yes. Homeless metaphorically, we want to be home. Yeah, and in in the Four Quartets, he talks about you know coming home to the same place, the place where we began. Yes. On we go to more calls. We go to Anita next morning. Anita. Hi, I um I read the Odyssey this summer, and I just loved it. I mean, I reread it. I'm an English major, so I must have read it sometime along the line. And uh, I just spirituality aside, I, I think I, it's just a wonderful, wonderful. I read the Robert Fitzgerald translation. Yeah, that's a great translation. It's a great yeah. translation, and I I was transported, and I didn't feel about the women. I, I caught a bit of the caller, the lo- caller who talked about the women. I mean, I definitely identify with Odysseus very much. I, I was his yes. journey was my journey. I had never had a problem with that. But I also found the women to be wonderfully strong in many ways. I loved the enchantresses and the the way they tricked him, the wily, That's right. you know, Odysseus. And, uh, and what about Athena? And Athena, look yeah. at how she's pulling all the strings. That's right, Behind That's right. the scenes. And uh-huh. I love Penelope, too, because she's quite wily in her own way, uh, uh, undoing the, uh, the uh, what she's making. She's making something that she's night knitting, undoes basically. it. She's basically knitting a, sh- knitting a shroud for Laertes, right, her right. father-in-law. Right. And then at night she undoes it, and the suitors know that they can have her hand when she... You know, when she's that's done, right. but, but she undoes it, and I she, think that's... Yeah, she manages to hold them off for yes, almost 10 years. That's Guile for 10 years? Yeah. That's right, that's right. And so I, I think she, she does a wonderful job of uh, being patient and wily at the same time, and, and, you know, she wins out. That's right. And so I, 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 I identified with all of those people. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, thanks for mentioning that, because yeah. I forgot to say before that, yeah, many of the uh, characters, uh, the goddesses and, 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 the, and the temptresses and so on, uh, are women, and they're powerful figures in the poem, absolutely. Thank you for that, Anita. And on we go to uh, more of your calls. Uh, we can go next to Peter. Morning, Peter. Good morning, Michael. Thank you, as always, for your wonderful shows. And thank you, uh, Mr. Fisher. This is a, a fabulous topic. Uh, I had occasion to recall just yesterday uh, late former Governor uh, Ann Richards of Texas in a, a speech, I think it was before the Commonwealth Club, and she said at one point, you know, life is tough. If we don't tell kids that, we're setting them up. And I just cheered when I heard her say that, uh, based partly on my own experience, and I, I'm sure a universal experience of, you know, running into things that you never would have expected as hardships. And uh, to, to, you know, get strong with some of those muscles starting from a young age. And if, if adults don't help children do that, and education, I think, should, should help do that, uh, you know, it, it, it does make life a lot worse than it would be, and at the same time to reassure them that there are universal laws. And I, don't you think we need something uh, along these lines in, in the mainstream education and not just always leave it to religion? Um, yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And when you think about all the, all the fairy tales and all a poem like, a, like the Odyssey, you know, was read to children, uh, these fairy tales and poems and myths do make that point. There are trials and tribulations. There are tough things coming, and uh, you can deal with them. Sometimes you win, sometimes you lose, but you go forward. So I think that's right. Kids do need to get that message. 
and and not uh, have life presented to them uh, as a kind of a pretty picture book. Do you know Bruno Bettelheim's work? Uh, yeah, yeah, I no, do. He yeah, was, yeah, he, he writes about that in there. Terrible yeah. man, but he said that this is what fairy tales do. That you know, Hansel yeah. and Gretel go into the forest and they come out afterward. And that's right. Kids hear these stories and they realize that there are things out there, monsters yeah, like. Yeah, they need the, to know uh, that. Yeah. Um, also, in so many instances, the Odyssey is read. Well, James Joyce read it. You know, it's a father-son story. You know, it yeah, is a father-son yeah, and story. it is, it is. And yeah. and there's a sense, as I said, not only of mentoring, but of what Telemachus, his son, has to go through in order yeah. to be reunited with him. Yeah, not only Penelope, but and, and Odysseus himself, but the son. Yeah, that's right, that's right. The uh, when when Odysseus returns home, uh, he has to be uh, reunited on, on a real face-to-face basis with his son, uh, Telemachus, with his wife Penelope, and with his father Laertes, and these. Reunions and these rectification of relationships is a necessary forerunner to the purifying of his household through the defeat of the suitors. So that tells us something about our own lives, about coming home and the need to really have the heartfelt relationships uh, in our lives uh, become real for us. Here's an email that tells us uh, maybe more than we want to know about education and what's going on in some of the schools these days. This is from a listener in Belvedere named Duff who writes... It's sad that so few people, including English teachers, read the Odyssey these days. When her fifth grade class was asked to read an adventure story and do a report on it, my daughter, an avid reader, chose Homer's Odyssey. When she presented it to her teacher, the teacher actually said, The Odyssey, a book about a car? How is that an adventure story? We changed schools. <laughs> oh, dear. Oh, dear is right. Okay. Here's another listener who writes, How would the perspective of suffering be affected if the theory that Homer was a woman was true? And does the author encounter this perspective in his book? Uh, not really. I had not uh, kind of uh, dealt with the question of whether or not Homer was a woman, and I don't know that it matters. You know, the poem is as it is, and I don't think it makes so much difference. Another listener writes, uh, I very recently and very suddenly found myself forgiving myself for many things that I did in my past. I found that I was suddenly free of much regret and shame that I had carried with me for many years. Could the return home be interpreted also as a letting go and forgiving oneself for negative consequences of the past? Absolutely, and uh, this is one of the themes that I write about in the book is the the, the practice of of forgiveness, uh, which involves self-forgiveness and forgiving others. And uh, I suppose I'm not going to say a whole lot about that right now, but just to say that forgiveness is a more nuanced and complicated topic than it looks like. And and forgiveness uh, doesn't involve pardoning ourselves for everything that we've done in the past and pardoning others. It involves uh, a sense of acceptance and understanding, so, but yes, self-forgiveness is a huge spiritual practice and a complicated one. A few more of your emails. Kurt writes, uh, it's fascinating to try to track books and movies based on the Odyssey. Examples include Oh Brother, Where Art Thou and Cold Mountain and James Joyce's Ulysses. Can you think of any more? Well, <laughs> yeah, there are lots of them. But <laughs> lots he, of he says, them, yeah. P.S., who was the famous baseball player of ancient Greece? Answer, Homer. <laughs> Silly. Uh, Matt writes, I'm leaving for the Peace Corps in five weeks, and the Odyssey parallels abound. Right now, I'm less caught up in the sailing home part and more the leaving home part. What does Zen say about me? What about my relationships with the people here at home? Well, uh, there's, there's two things. There's going forth and there's coming home. And uh, there's a time in life when, when it's time to go forth, and there's a time when it's time to come home. And when we go forth... Usually we're leaving those relationships behind for a while and we're going to go through a lot and we're going to become a different person and then we're going to return home and uh, revisit and reinvent, I think, those relationships. So good luck with your going forth and when it's time for you to come home, you'll find out. Here's another question about going back from Kate, uh, who's up in Massachusetts, who says, I'm in a Zen-like state, immersed in the repetition of a precisely trimming a large stack of cards with a ruler and exacto knife in rural Massachusetts, where I work out of home. So to hear your program is very fitting to my current activity. I am a, quote, collector, and just wrote this statement of yours down, quote, the past always changes according to our present level of engagement, end of quote. Could you elaborate a little more, even repeat some of your uplifting comments on what is the essence of spiritual practice? Well, uh, the essence of spiritual practice, uh, where, where do we start? Let's start here. I think we'll uh, honesty. a few days. Yeah, exactly, <laughs> exactly. You can't. But, you but can't we're on the radio, so we... Because so uh, you do in, the, in this book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, but let's say this. Let's say being honest with ourselves, turning toward what's really going on with us, really looking at it, really seeing it, and really being willing to be honest to the bottom of our honesty. 
Uh, for me, the main practice is silent sitting, which involves being aware of the breath, being aware of the body, being aware of the present moment, and just letting whatever comes come and letting it go. And in that way, without my trying to shape things or without my trying to control things, to be willing to sit in the middle of uh, what's really real in my life and be honest about it. The honesty, the primacy on honesty, uh, strikes me as you know laudable and noble and, and maybe even wonderful, and yet so difficult when, as William Faulkner said in his great Nobel speech, <laughs> the heart is always, or not always, but the heart is in great art all, always or often against itself. Yes, absolutely. And so the way that we work with our honesty is to study our self-deception. And uh, this is one of the great themes of the Odyssey and, and of my book is the fact that deception and self-deception as an inevitable part of who we are. Uh, the idea that we're going to be honest and we're going to be straightforward all the time is impossible. What we want to do is try to be honest, try to be real with ourselves and to recognize... In the moment. Uh, in the moment, yeah. And to recognize our many, many deceptions, our many, many false tales, our many, many uh, confusing, uh, tricky, tricky, tricky things and to look at those things and know what they are. Because, yes, you're right, there's no way of getting around it, and there's no end to our exploration of who we really are and what is really true for us. Here's a caller on point. Uh, Zachary, good morning. Good morning. Can you hear me? Hear you fine. Great. Um, so I had a question, sort of more of a Zen question. Um, so, first of all, I haven't read the book, but uh, I think I will now since it sounds really great. Um, the question is, thinking of... of Spiritual practice is a journey home. Sounds wonderful, but where in the middle of that is just this is it, or where is the turtle-nosed snake in the middle of that? <laughs> well, that's how I'm defining and speaking about those. You're, you're giving some sort of arcane uh, Zen uh, quotes there, which uh, the burden of which has to do with being in the present moment at its depth. And so in this book, uh, what I'm saying is, being in the present moment at its depth is what I mean, is fundamentally and most profoundly what is meant, what I mean by coming home, coming home to the present moment, coming home to the wholeness of one's life. So uh, I'm kind of mixing metaphors in, in the book, uh, and as you're pointing out, the metaphors used in Zen are, are to some extent different from the metaphor of the Odyssey. Thanks for the call, Zachary, and let me get some more of your calls on here, and we go next to Brian. Brian, join us. Hi. Hi there. Hiya. Hello. Um, yeah, I want to thank you for having me on the show. And Norman, it sounds like a wonderful book. I hope to pick it up. Um, I have a curiosity about um, how it is that you've come to kind of this classic text to have this kind of really splendid metaphor for your, for your own personal life as well as kind of like a more universal message also. Well, uh, like one of our callers, I happened to be rereading the Odyssey a few years ago. And uh, in, in one of the Dharma talks that I was giving in a retreat, I happened to just throw in some of the stories from the Odyssey to illustrate the points that I was making about Zen practice. And I noticed that people really uh, enjoyed it and really were engaged with it. And, uh, and, and I realized that uh, Odysseus, as an example of someone on the spiritual path, was um, people found it easier to identify with because of Odysseus, uh, his many problems and his screw-ups, and he's very ordinary and regular, uh, unlike, say, the Buddha or Jesus, who are superb uh, examples, but maybe unattainable ones. So when I saw the response to my using these stories, I began using them more and more, and that got me interested in, in uh, pursuing it to the point of writing a book. So that's how I got into it, is through my, the enthusiasm of my listeners in a Zen retreat. Thank you for the call. You also wind up interpreting the Odyssey, well, in, in a context of love. Yeah, yeah, because I think that, you know, coming home for Odysseus is coming home to love coming home to a real engagement with the people closest to him in his life, uh, including himself. And, and the caller before that mentioned self-forgiveness. Uh, that, that's important because self-forgiveness is a necessary step toward really loving oneself as one is. So, yeah, I think that, that love and wisdom for me uh, go hand in hand, and they're one and the same. Keevan raises a question that I think is certainly worth consideration. He wants to know uh, whether some people are simply more predisposed by temperament to practice Zen, more able to calm racing thoughts and that sort of thing. Well, uh, I don't think that one has to be uh, skillful at calming racing thoughts in order to do Zen practice. I mean, you're right that the Zen style and the Zen literature is appealing to some and less appealing to others, that's for sure. 
But I don't think that there's a personality profile of someone who would do Zen practice. I mean, over the years, I've seen every possible kind of person uh, do, do Zen. There are plenty of people who do, who do Zen who have very racing thoughts and have a really hard time. Type A's even? Yeah, there are plenty, plenty of people like that. Yeah, So, uh, so I, I think that uh, anybody who's attracted to the tradition ought to feel like uh, there's every chance that they can really engage it. Let's engage another caller. Wendy, join us. Good morning. Good morning. Um, I just wanted to respond to the woman that had called and said that she was tired of waiting, and I just (laughs) wanted to say again that women need to wake up, and um, we are living in a patriarchal dream, and um, we need to restore the balance on our planet, and um, it just doesn't have to be this one way, and... um, I think we all have that responsibility, and um, we're so indoctrinated and programmed and to think that it has to be this way and violent and fearful. And um, so I just think um, that can happen, and it can happen in a flash. And um, women have a lot of power. They're 50% of the population, and... um, and Actually, more than have, more than fifty. Yeah, so mm-hmm. you know, so it's amazing that you know we're still living, and why the planet is so out of, out of balance. And um, I just think um, it would really be good for the whole planet if that happened. Yeah. <laughs> and it it happens in, uh, with your thoughts. And um, if everybody was responsible for their thoughts, well, how um, much does thinking bring about? Well, change? what I mean. Well, are you saying if if you think the world will change, the world will change, or if you have good thoughts? No, I think you should just pay attention to what you're thinking. And, you know, like um, if you have a violent thought, then, of course, there's going to – so if you're having these violent thoughts, you have to look at within yourself and where is that coming from. And um, so I think a lot of times you do have to get away in silence that's why in meditation a lot of times is in silence, but I think it should be throughout. Well, that's why Norman Fisher, in fact, uh, advocates, uh, and thank you for the call, silence. I mean, silence is, um, is a good teacher in itself, isn't it? Absolutely. I think it's really necessary, especially in the noisy world we're living in now. I think we all need to step back into silence once in a while. We do. It's not a matter of silence is better or the world is no good. It's a matter of to survive the world and engage it fully, I think we need to step back from time to time, and, that, and that's what the meditation practice is for. But again, you get into this question of temperament. There are, there are some who their mind is so chattering or neurotic or whatever it is, you know, so engaged all the time mm-hmm. that it's very difficult for them to withdraw from the world, to move into silence, or for that matter, to mm-hmm. do it in an isolated way, which it usually is called for. Mm-hmm. Well, first of all, there are lots of forms of uh, spiritual practice. So there are there are forms that are you know, movement forms, let's say, yoga or other forms uh, where there's uh, uh, movement activity. Um, so not everybody has to practice in meditation, that's for sure. But uh, if someone does want to practice uh, meditation, silent meditation, I think uh, that having a, a, a very active and engaged mind uh, is no barrier. I, I certainly have a very active and engaged mind. And uh, it's been uh, a wonderful thing for me to be able to practice sitting meditation. Even if things are arising in the mind, that's not necessarily a problem. So the, the goal is not to blank the mind out. Uh, the goal is to uh, create a, a baseline of, of awareness uh, within which thought can rise and fall. You've studied Zen um, quite assiduously through the years. And does it bother you that it's, that it's become in some ways... Um, Westernized to the point of what every sort of popular culture Western thing become you know instant roads to Sartori those kinds of things <laughs> that are ubiquitous in our society. Uh, it doesn't really bother me at all. There was a conference at UC Berkeley a few years ago uh, where people were really uh, you know Buddhist scholars and and Buddhist practitioners were re- really upset about the popularization of Buddhism and the trivialization of Buddhism in the media and so on. But you know it, it doesn't really it doesn't really bother me. I mean everything the the the, the public forum is 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 crazy enough on on all fronts. It doesn't bother me. But and you know it's been my life's work actually to contemplate the Westernization of Zen, 
because uh, every religious tradition is constantly in, in motion, constantly changing, constantly adapting to new cultural circumstances. And, and if it doesn't, uh, if we try to do Zen as if we were Japanese, I mean, I've been through that, right? And it doesn't actually work out. We have to do Zen as if we are who we are, and that means that Zen has to change. And, and in a way, that's been my life's work, and it's very creative and very interesting. It's great for the Zen tradition. It's great for us, uh, and, and, and as a person who's uh, working in this field, uh, it's really fun. Well, we're going to have Paul Ekman on soon enough, you know, who's done some work recently yeah. with the Dalai Lama. We yeah. have Danny Goleman on. You know, I mean, I don't think of them as popularizers. They're people no, who no. are trying to interpret the Dalai Lama's work and yes, work of Zen. Yes, and, and they've, been, they've been major forces in, in helping and being in dialogue with the main currents of Western culture, uh, Buddhism being in dialogue with the main currents of Western culture, which is really essential. Well, for those of you who are interested in Zen Buddhism or if you're interested in Homer's Odyssey, I think Norman Fisher's book is probably essential. It's safe to say it's called Sailing Home, Using the Wisdom of Homer's Odyssey to Navigate Life's Perils and Pitfalls. Good to have you on. Thank you for being with us. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be here. And we are here with you Monday through Friday, 9 to 11. An hour is repeated 10 to 11 in the evening. And we are appreciative uh, of your listenership. And thank you for being with us here Monday through Friday, 9 to 11, or in the evening, 10 to 11, or on the Internet if you download us and listen to us, or by uh, podcast if that's how you hear us. Any way that you hear us, we appreciate your listening to us. And remind you that you can let us know what you think about what you hear on Forum simply by emailing us, forum at kqed.org, or calling our listener call-in line, 415-553-3300. We want to thank our senior editor, Dan Zoll, and our producers, Kevin Guillory, Judy Campbell, and Nick Medinsky. Our engineer is Danny Bringer. Forum's executive producer is Raul Ramirez. I'm Michael Krasny. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio and the Claude and Louise Rosenberg, Jr. Family Foundation.